I don't know how I missed my cue that bad, but I totally forgot to walk up here. <laughs> hey, it's good to see you all tonight. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm the campus minister here with RUF. It's great to have each and every one of you here tonight. Um, I really appreciate you coming out tonight. I know that this, uh, this is the part in the semester that is not, not the fun part, not what you're, uh, what you're enjoying, especially this semester, which has been tough. So um, I'm, I'm grateful to see you all. It's been really fun. I'm smiling behind my mask. So uh, yeah, I care about each of you. And it's, it's really good to see you tonight. Um, welcome to RUF. If this is your first time or if you're new, still exploring, um, we're glad you're here. We hope you, uh, we hope you can enjoy this time tonight. Um, RUF, we're a Christian group on campus, and we're trying to create connections um, in a disconnected campus, trying to create an environment for safety and fun, even maybe vulnerability and conversation about faith and life and family and all the stuff that we're encountering. Um, so if you hang out for a bit, uh, you'll get the gist of what we do. Um, so yeah, we're really glad you're here tonight. Uh, so this semester on our large group nights, uh, when we gather here, we've been looking through a book of the Bible. We've been looking through uh, the book of Romans, which is a letter written a long, long time ago, like 2,000 years ago. And we're trying to ask the question, does this book written so, so long ago have anything to say with where you and I are encountering life in the midst of college at New Mexico State in 2020 in the weirdest year that's in our lifetimes, for sure. And uh, I know it's been really encouraging to me as we look at some of these amazing, what, what the Christian faith calls doctrines or theological truths, things like union with Christ, which means that we're welcomed into the very life of God himself, life of relationships of peace and joy with God, or adopted as sons, or we're children of God, we're recipients to all the blessings that are God's. Uh, or, or this idea of justification, that God's timeless, once and for all declaration of I cherish you, not based on what you do, but based on trusting in God. Or sanctification, God's changing us into our best selves by making us love God and love others more. Like, these are amazing doctrines, right? We've been talking about them the last few weeks. And I've been really encouraged and nourished by them. I know that some of you have too. And tonight, we got asked the question, we ask ourselves, okay, if this is true, <laughs> if these are all things that the Christian faith proposes are actually true, then why in the world does my daily life fall so far short of this? <laughs> why does my experience fall so short of these doctrines? Why does my life still hurt so badly? Why do my grandparents or my parents get sick? Why are breakups so painful? Why am I lonely? Why do I have... Why do I have, um, you know, why am I lonely in friendships and in singleness? Why do my parents fight? Why do I have my, so many problems with my body? Why do I have so, much, so many questions about depression and mental illness? Why, and then not just myself, like on a bigger systemic level, why are black and brown people in our country seeming to get just, I mean, killed in the streets? Why is it that a pandemic ruins pretty much everything that we touch? <laughs> If this is what Christianity says, why is this the gap in what we experience in our life and in our society? If Christianity is this purported good news that's supposed to address all of the problems that we as humans encounter, what's up with what's going on in my life and in your life, in the life around us? Why do I have problems? Why is life painful? And tonight, we're going to look at how God is working and will work to redeem his children and his creation from the, what, what the Bible calls the groaning of creation and the groaning of our lives. And we're going to look at this in three ways. One, we're going to look at a groaning creation. Second, we're going to look at a groaning Christian. And third, we're going to see God at work. First, a groaning creation. Second, a groaning Christian. And third, God at work. So I'm going to read this text. 
And uh, per usual, if you have questions about what we're talking about tonight, if you're unclear on something, shoot me a text. And after I'm done, we will, um, I'll dialogue with those texts in a faltering and incomplete manner. Leave you wanting more. Uh, so this is God's word from Romans chapter 8. And this is what it says. It says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself might be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain, freedom of the, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. Let's pray real quick. Father in heaven, um, we're coming from so many different places tonight. Many of them are tired and overwhelmed and anxious about school and about family. We pray that as we Bring those things in here tonight that your spirit would indeed be gentle with us and that this text would warm us, encourage us, and nourish us for the week ahead. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start off by looking at the groaning creation. The groaning creation. It's probably a little obvious that what we just read, you saw it in there. But this is particularly in verses 19 through 26. Uh, and if you, you can look back down and scan them what we're talking about here. But verse 19 tells us really clearly, he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing. Why? Because he says the creation waits with eager longing. And he says the creation groans. The creation groans. What does this mean? He means that the whole world is desperately craning. In verse 19, he says the, des the whole world waits with eager longing for the redeeming and the, the revealing of the sons of God. Now, what does it mean when he says the revealing of the sons of God? Well, I think from verse 18 and from verse 15, which we've led last week, it says that the sons of God are those who trust in Jesus. It's the men and the women who have said, I trust in who Christ is and what he has done. And in him, I have life. I have great life. And he says the whole creation is desperately waiting for those children, those sons and daughters of God, to be revealed for what they really are, which is God's children. So he says creation is waiting for that. It's, and because and he says when that happens, when that revealing happens, that will be the end of time when God will display his finished product. He says this is the finished product of his people that he's been working all through history to say this is my beloved child who I've been working at and working in for all this time. 
He says, this is that final moment of deliverance that everything longs for and waits for. And, and, and there's this attempt at desperately, the, creation wants to see this happen. I was watching, any of you watched The Last Dance yet on uh, Netflix? It's this show on Netflix about uh, the Chicago Bulls. And there's this awesome element where the, 92, uh, the 1992 um, Olympic Dream Team, so the Olympic Dream Team in 92 was the, this, they took all the superstars of the NBA and put them on one team. And they just said, this is gonna be the dream team, the team that's just gonna get US gold. And, and everyone in the United States was like, this team is going to be so amazing. They are just going to walk out there and wipe the floor of everybody else. And, and the whole nation, really the whole world, was craning their necks, was so excited to watch this team play. The whole Olympics, this show tells us, was basically waiting, desiring, longing to see these guys play because they knew when they played it was going to be this perfect synergy of talent and practice and skill all coming together in basketball beauty. The whole Olympics was, I mean, he says, and, and what he says here is that creation is desperately longing and waiting for that of the children of God. Because he says at that point, that's the time when God will reveal his children for all that they are in their beauty and all of the brokenness will be eradicated and alleviated. Now he says, why does creation long for that? Why do they wait for that? Verse 20 tells us, he says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who suggested, subjected it. Why does he tell us this? He says, because the creation is suffering the oppression of what we would call sin. That the, 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 it, the creation groans under the bondage and the oppression of sin. And there's some disagreement about scholars about what this actually means, but we know this, that everyone agrees that because of sin and because of God's wrath against sin, the whole created world, everything that you see, everything, that you, everything around us that we inhabit, it's cursed, it suffers from hopelessness, despair, and enslavement. And because it's enslaved to corruption, it, it means that it, it, it groans against it. It feels the oppression of sin. It means that our sin and God's judgment on our sin has trickled down to the core of the creation. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading an article about the mountains because I love reading about the mountains. And they were, there was this, and they were talking about, this is weird, but hang with me. They were talking about dog poop in the mountains and about why we should all be people who clean up our dog poop in the mountains. Because partly it's unsightly and it smells bad. But the point of the article was, hey, you know what? The, where the, up at the mountains, the aquifers where we all get our water, they meet and are nourished and fed in the mountains. And so if we all have our animals just up there pooping, the, that's just gonna leach into the water supply over time and it's gonna begin to poison into the water supply and get into where you and I get the water that we drink. And so it could seep into the groundwater and poison the whole system. Well, that's what sin does to creation. It's what sin has done. Sin is that poison that has seeped into the groundwater of our whole, everything that we see. And so we have viruses that go rogue, that mutate, and they wipe out entire economies, and they kill hundreds of thousands of people around the world, and they infect so much. Or we have tsunamis that just one earthquake underwater will wipe out an entire island or forest fires on the west coast that just shut down literally whole continents because of smoke, that the whole creation is poisoned in such a way that is deeply, deeply broken. 
A groaning world, verse 22 shows us. Verse 22 is probably the least debated book, I mean verse in the entire Bible. Because what does it say here? It says that something's wrong with the world that we live in. Something is desperately wrong with the world that you and I inhabit. That, that, that something is wrong, that my mental health is wrong, my, my home is wrong, my sexuality and my understanding of my gender, something's off there, that, that race relations are wrong, that understandings of economics and power and money, that something is broken in our world. Everybody agrees with that. Nobody says our world is the way it should be. Nobody says, yeah, this is fine. Everything's fine. Everybody says something is off. And the Bible tells us that that problem is sin, that sin has seeped into the core, it's ruined the aquifer, and it's ruined everything, and that every moment that we experience in every day, there's little things that we experience that like when you can't log into Canvas and your, cam and your computer crashes, like little things like that, all the way to medium-sized things, like your parents' illness, or big things like a pandemic wrecking our world, or a global sex trade exploiting women and children, or hunger, like all of these things are the creation groaning under the oppression of sin. And so because of that creation, it, gr it cries out for the revealing of the sons of God, which is that moment where God will fix and solve everything and make it right. Verses 19 through 22, they show us that the whole creation longs for the fixing of the brokenness within it, the, the brokenness of sin where God will reveal his children, that is, Christians, for what they truly are, his children. And he put back the created order to the way that we all know in our gut that way it's supposed to be. And what's something really amazing here in this is that Paul is here legitimizing the sad and the angry and the frustration feelings that you experience in your life. He's saying, in effect, that the sadness and the frustration, the groaning that you feel in your life, that they're real and legitimate. Like, there's a reason that you feel that way. And those are, I mean, those are, if you're not frustrated by some of the things that are going on in your life, there might be something. Then Paul would say, there's something wrong with you. Look at what's going on in your life and in my life in our world. It's wrong. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And he legitimizes those. So first, the groaning creation. Second, the groaning Christian. Look at verses 23 through 25. But not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. What is he saying here? He's saying that Christians in particular, those who are, those who are united to Christ, all these doctrines that we're talking about, he says, we feel that groaning, that incompleteness acutely. He says, we feel there's a necessary incompleteness of the Christian experience. That there is something of a gap between what we believe and what we feel and experience and live in in our daily lives. I know that you all feel that because I hang out with you and I have coffee with you and I talk about life and you just say, ugh, this is hard. My life's hard. I'm sad. I trust this is true of me and as Christian, but this is what I experience, that gap. The inevitable frustration of moral and physical and so social infirmities are just a part of living today. And in Christian theology, there's a term that theologians use, and it's called the already and the not yet. What do I mean by that? 
What do I mean by that? Well, I, I mean, look at verse 23. He says, we eagerly await the adoption as sons. Adoption as sons. Now, some of you, if you're a student, you remember back from last week where Paul tells us in verse 15, he says, we receive adoption as sons. Verse 15, he says, we have been adopted as sons. And so here's this weird thing happening where he says, hey, this has already happened. We've been become the children of the living God. And then he says, hey, we eagerly await. We can't wait. We're longing. We're groaning for this to finally happen. Now, what's up with that? Well, it's this thing, this tension called the already and the not yet. Think of it this way. Think with me about a graduation, either your high school graduation or your hopeful college graduation, something like that. Um, when you submit that final assignment for your class and you, you put it in and you know that you're going to pass that assignment, you're done with school, right? You're done. You're, you, you have finished all the requirements for your degree. It's already finished. And you haven't walked across the stage and received your diploma. It's not yet totally, you're not yet totally graduated, right? So you're done with degree, that degree, that's already happened, but not yet have you graduated. And it's the same with every element of our salvation, that we have already been adopted as children of the living God, and not yet has it been fully shown in all of its beauty and power and dignity and joy. And that gap in between those, that's the hurt, that's the groaning that we all experience as Christians. And so what does that mean? It means that there's this huge sense of emotional, ex existential, and spiritual incompleteness. The feeling when you close your Bible after a quiet time and you feel like God is just as far as when you opened it. Or that feeling of aloneness at church or at RUF large group and you say, hey, I still feel alone even when I'm going through the steps. Or that sense of futility when you're seeming to fight against this long-term sin that you just can't seem to stop doing. That empty feeling when your non-Christian friends are doing all kinds of fun things and you're like, man, that would be great, but I can't do it. That's the already and the not yet. That's the groaning that we all experience. Now, what do we do about that? Like, what, what, in the midst of that tension, which I know we all experience, what do we do? And I, I, I think the answer is simple to say and really hard to do. I think the answer is we groan. <laughs> I think the answer is that we are called to be people who sit in that sadness and feel it out. And you and I, if I can be really frank, we're really bad at grieving. Americans are really bad at grieving. When something gets hard in our lives, I do this, I see many people do this. We do one of two things. Either we get depressed or we get angry, right? We either get depressed or we get angry. And, and depression is basically internalizing the sadness. Depression is despairing. We just sort of dissociate into numbing activities like hours on TikTok or streaming you know, Netflix or something like that. And we just say, this is too hard for me to think about, so I'm just going to internalize it and numb myself, right? Or we get really, really, really angry, right? When something really sad happens, we get really angry. We rage post on something, TikTok or Instagram or Facebook, although I don't know y'all use Facebook anymore, but something, we just lash out, right? Or we get, we riot in the streets if it gets bad enough. Ne and, and neither of these emotions, the depression or the anger, neither of these are really encountering what's going on in us, which is profound and deep sadness, right? We look at our world and we say something's deeply wrong. I read this quote from a, uh, um, a, a, a counselor and she said one of the main things that tip people towards depression or despair is a low tolerance for sadness. It's the inability to bear dark emotions. 
that cause our most significant problems. Listen to this. When we cannot tolerate the dark emotions, we try all kinds of artificial lights, including drugs, alcohol, shopping, shallow sex, hours in front of a phone or a computer. I guess I would ask you, like, what's your default when something hard happens? Do you default towards depression? Do you default towards anger? The Bible, and we're going to talk about this in just a second, says, hey, probably the healthy healing emotion is sadness. Is to say, oof, my life hurts, and I need to sit in that sadness. We're going to talk about that in just a second. You know a community that is really, really good at groaning? The African-American church. They are really, really good at groaning. I had the privilege of, uh, when I was in, in graduate school in St. Louis, of going to a, a funeral um, my next door neighbor, I lived in a, in a pretty urban section of St. Louis. My next door neighbor was a, she grew up in St. Louis. And it was an African-American family. And her father passed away and I got really close with her. And so she invited me and my roommates who were all white guys in our 20s to go to this funeral. And so we walk in and we were the only white guys in this entire funeral. And it's this whole black church. And we're sitting in the back and it's super awkward because they are leaning into the sadness of this death. Uh, they are physically, audibly, awkwardly crying, groaning, like ugly crying. And they're grieving together. And, and my friends and I were just sitting there like, I want to be anywhere in the world but this church, this African-American church, because it was so awkward for us. But then I went and talked to her a couple, you know, so, so they were at this, this funeral and they're singing and they're crying and they're hoping and they're groaning. And, they're ch and you know what they were doing? They were channeling their sadness Godward, right? They were groaning is channeling our sadness Godward. It's directing our sadness towards God. The Psalms teach us, the Christian Psalms show us how to do this. They bemoan the sadness in their lives. They cry out for justice. When we read the Psalms carefully, when we really internalize this book of Psalms in the Bible, we begin to feel that deep incompleteness in your life and we begin to channel those sad feelings towards God in a way that becomes very therapeutic. And that's what the black church does so well because then I went and asked her, like, hey, how are you doing a couple days later after, you, you know, after your dad? She said, I'm doing really well. And I know she wasn't lying, you know why? Because she had ugly cried at a funeral. How can you do that? How can you lean into the, your loneliness, your depression, your anxiety, the sadness of 2020, your self-hatred, maybe even the abuse you've suffered? And honestly, I don't, I don't know, because that's your story. I, I can't stand up here and tell you and your story how to lean into the sadness. But I can tell you that we are a community that wants to figure that out for you and with you. Come talk with me. Come talk with Madeline or Deborah, someone in your quattro, about how do you lean into the groaning of your story. All right, so we see a groaning creation. We see the groaning Christian. Lastly, we see a God at work. So what's the antidote to all of this? <laughs> what, where is there any good news in all of this, right? This is tough stuff. So I think there's two things in this text. First, there's a spirit who empathizes. And third, there's a certain, second, there's a certain, certain glory, a spirit who empathizes and a certain glory. So first, the spirit who empathizes. Look with me at verse 26. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with what? Groaning's too deep for words. Look at the word he uses. 
groanings too deep for words. What does that mean? It means that God himself empathizes with you in your groaning. There's a social worker who's really big in the realms of social work and and, and encountering emotions. Her name is Brene Brown. She's written a book about the power of empathy and healing. And she describes empathy. Empathy is basically feeling with people. Feeling with people. She says with is the most powerful and relational preposition. She says not feeling for people, not watching people feel things, but feeling with people, that's empathy. And she says, empathy is this, is when you are stuck down deep in the hole of your own sadness and despair, you're saying, I'm stuck, I'm overwhelmed, I'm sad, I'm groaning. Empathy is when someone else climbs down into that hole and says, I know what it's like to be down here. And you're not alone. Empathy is the choice to connect with another person, to go to sad places in your story that are like the sad places in their story and feeling sad feelings with them. And the human default in the midst of that, we want to either solve a problem or minimize the problem, right? We don't want to empathize because it's really uncomfortable for us, right? So think about this. Think about singleness. I know that many of you are like, why am I single? Now, it would be really simple to just solve the problem. Just be like, well, go date. There's a lot of apps out there. That'll solve the problem, right? That, that, that'll deal with it. But it doesn't, that, that, that doesn't make you feel any less lonely. That just whitewashes a deep problem of, of loneliness and sadness of loneliness. And sometimes you want to minimize the problem, right? Where you just say, well, at least you have lots of time on your hand. You can get a lot done. No, that doesn't make you feel any better at all. You're still lonely. Empathy would be someone who says, I don't know what to say with you in your loneliness. I don't, I don't know what to say about being single, but, but I'm really glad you told me that. And I'm, I'm feeling your sadness. And I want to walk with you through that sadness. You feel the power in that statement, the healing in that statement. Empathy opens doors to relational connections and intimacy that are far deeper than just solving the problem. And we're learning in our studies of neurology and and caring for people well and social work and neuroscience that that empathy is more effective often in therapy than just solving the problem behind someone. You can talk to a medical doctor and they'll say that listening to a patient is often more healing to the person than just giving them more meds. Why? Because we have a deep desire to be heard and connected and empathized with. Now, if that's true, what does this text show us that God does with us? It says that God empathizes with us. The very emotion that we experience in our day-to-day life of groaning at the brokenness of our world, it says God feels that with you. God does not just come down and say, oh, hey, what's your problem? Zip, zap. All right, here it is. I'm solving it. No, God comes in and sits with you and prays with you and for you in the sadness that you and I experience. This text shows us that God feels the exact same emotion that we feel and says, I'm glad that you've been honest and vulnerable to feel this. Let's sit in it and heal through it. Christianity, if those of you who are here looking at Christianity and saying, I'm not persuaded, I don't know what to think of this Christian faith. Christianity does not offer a God who comes in and just solve your problems and moves on with his life. You don't want that. You don't want a God who just comes in and solves your problems and says, now go away. No, Christianity comes and offers you a God who sits with you and feels deeply with you in such a way that as you begin to feel with him and he feels with you, it heals the deep hurts that we all experience. 
What are you feeling tonight? What emotion are you experiencing that makes you sad or angry or overwhelmed? Do you realize that as a, if, when you're a Christian, God feels that with you? He feels that exact emotion with you, even tonight. That's powerful stuff, y'all. All right, so first, a God who empathizes. Second, a certain glory. Empathy is great and powerful and good and healing. And if God only, only empathized, then we'd be left with essentially an eternal pity party. An essential, but but th there's more than that. If anybody can come in and begin to make things right, it's the God of the Bible, right? We need a God who can actually do things and will do things with the pains and the groanings that we experience. And that's what we have here. Look at verse 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, according to those who are called into his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, verse 30, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. What's going on here? I know there's a lot of big Christian terms for those of you who are maybe still experiencing or experimenting with the Christian faith. What God is saying, what Paul is saying here is that God has been and is working from the very beginning of creation to the very end of everything, the end of time. God is orchestrating and working every piece of it for your and my good. Verse 28 and 29 and 30 show us that from the beginning of God time, God has been orchestrating and planning salvation and joy and peace and connection and cherishing and love and perfection for you and for me and for the whole creation for when we trust in him. I know there's that word predestined in there. Don't get hung up in that. We can talk about that more later. What I'm saying here is that God has a sequence that is certain, a sequence of, of certainty that is hurling all of creation towards your and my joy and peace and connection with him and with each other. That, and that God is in complete control and that there's great hope in that. There's great hope in that. Like he says here in verse 24, for, this we, for in this hope we were saved. For hope that is seen is not hope, but who hopes for what he sees. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul here, he wants us to feel with certainty the total assurance of the hope of peace and love and justice and goodness. And it is a 100% guarantee that God will accomplish those things for Christians, for those who love him and whom he loves. And that that hope is certain, not based on your faithfulness, but based on his faithfulness. So what do we see here? In the midst of our groaning, we see first a God who groans and empathizes with us, and then second, a God who is working everything. And I don't know how that works in the midst of brokenness. You're going to text me and say, answer this question about my brokenness. I, I don't know. But I can tell you that God is at work in it, bringing good out of even really, really, really broken bad things. All right, so how does this matter? Why does this matter when, you, when you're walking to class, like Jess said? All right, two things, I think. First, we are called to be people of empathy. We are called to be people of empathy. We're called to imitate God, that when God loves us, we are called to love. And God gives us empathy in our groanings. We're called to that same empathy with each other. That we are called not to solve other problems or to minimize others' problems, but we're called to sit with them in the awkwardness of other people's problems and the discomfort and the sadness. And you know where this gets really hard for me is when I'm sitting with another student and they're telling me their problem 
and I don't know what to say, and I'm gonna be really, really specific. You're gonna be like TMI, Jonathan, but it's okay, I'm married, so I don't, anyways. I'm gonna be like, my armpits start sweating, right? And I'm like, I don't know what to do. This is really awkward. I can't help this person. And I get really uncomfortable and I start sweating. And I don't, and it's awkward, right? It's really awkward. Empathy is when you say, you are, you are worth my discomfort for your comfort. That I'm willing to be uncomfortable so that I can comfort you. Empathy is saying that your worth is, that your, your comfort is more important than my productive day. That even, even you feeling heard and not alone is more important than me possibly getting an assignment in on time. So that you feel heard and valued and connected with. Do you do that? Do you offer that kind of empathy to the people that you interact with? And if you don't, I'm not saying go try harder, I'm saying study the God who empathizes with you. And slowly you become the person that empathizes with others. Second, we're called to wait with patience, verse 25. We hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Y'all, life's tough, man. I mean, 2020 has just ripped us all a new one. And we are all feeling the groaning of creation, our own groaning. I mean, mental health is the second unseen pandemic in college, right? All of us are sad and depressed and lonely. And we're called to look to the certain hope of what God is doing in your life and in my life and wait for it with patience. The revealing of the sons of God, the redemption of our bodies when God will make all things right in your life and mine. And we wait for that. And in the meantime, we cry hard and we listen well and we empathize. That's what makes it bearable. What does this text show us? It shows us, it looks us dead in the eye and says, yeah, life is hard. It stings and that's because of sin. Creation feels it. You feel it. I feel it. And we long for the end of that. And it shows us that a God empathizes with us. The God empathizes with us. He sits with us in that feeling and groans with us. And then God does something. He is doing something. He will solve those problems to bring an end to that pain with a certain hope of glory. And we are called to patient hope and to be people of empathy. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this time that we can study your word. I pray that you would shape each of us into people who are hopeful, patient, and empathetic. May that be true of each of us by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.